Okay, welcome back to Crime City, Colorado. I'm Cammie. I'm Kylie. I'm the mom. I'm the daughter. Welcome to New Year. Yes. <laughs> How was your New Year? Fine. Great, me too. Let's get this. We're having some technical issues. <laughs> so, let's see if we can get this going again. All right. We're just going to get into this this week. We're going to go back to the olden days. December 30th, 1978. Timothy Trevithick. Common spelling. Went to check on his girlfriend at 10.30 a.m. at her Littleton, Colorado home. He knocked on the front door and no one answered. He thought it was weird because he knew his girlfriend, 15-year-old Susan Spangler, was home. As was his mom, 45-year-old Nancy Spangler. And her brother, 17-year-old David Spangler, were also home. He was like, well, maybe they overslept. So he pounded harder on the door. Still no answer. Finally, Tim went around to the back of the house. All the doors were locked. He was finally able to squeeze through a basement window and get into the house. He went up the stairs and found Susan sleeping in her bed. As he got closer, he saw she was not sleeping. She was very much dead with a gunshot wound to her back. Tim ran into her brother David's room and found him dead too and saw that he had been shot in the chest. David had died with his his head and shoulders on the floor, his feet still on the bed. It appeared that David had been in a struggle. So David or Timothy called the police. When the police arrived, they found Susan and David's mother, Nancy, in the basement of the home, slumped over in a chair near a typewriter. That's how old this is. There was a typewriter with a gunshot wound to the head. Her husband, Smith & Wesson, 38 caliber weapon, was located near her, and a step stool was located upstairs in front of the closet where the gun was kept on a top shelf. On the typewriter near where Nancy was found was a typewritten suicide note signed with her initials in her handwriting. When Nancy's husband, Robert Spangler, arrived home, he found his home crawling with the police. Robert admitted to the police him and Nancy were having marital problems. Robert had been having an affair with a co-worker, Sharon Cooper. Robert said they had him and Nancy had been separated for the last nine months but he had recently moved back into the house in an attempt to reconcile their marriage. Robert said he left for work early in the morning that day. It did not come home until after the bodies had been found. He agreed to take a polygraph and cooperate with the investigation any way he could. His hands and gloves were tested for GSR. Kylie, what's Gunshot residue. <laughs> yeah. Then the technician who did the test on Robert took Robert home to his house for a spaghetti dinner, and to have Robert stay with him for the night as they were old pals. Gee, can we say conflict of interest? Mm. Robert and Nancy met um, and started dating when they were in junior high school back in their hometown of Ames, Iowa. Robert was a typical high school football hero. Nancy was the girl that did all the extracurricular activities. Robert was born in Des Moines, Iowa, January 10th, 1933. He's older than my grandmother. And adopted by Merlin and Ione Spengler. Merlin was a professor and researcher at Iowa State University. Merlin wrote a textbook, served as an officer in both world wars, and helped formulate the Marston Spengler theory of soil pressure on underground conduits, which survives to this day. There's even a laboratory at the college named after him. So dad is a badass. Now, since Robert was adopted, he clearly did not have the same brain power as his dad. But we, what he lacked in brains, he made up for in athletics and a gift for acting. 
After high school, he went to Iowa State, more out of obligation to his parents than a quest for higher education. Nancy also went to this college, and they both graduated with their degrees. They were married in 1955, before my mother was even born. And then Robert did a stint in the Army, and they would have David and Susan along the way. Robert then got a job with American Waterworks and moved the family to Littleton, Colorado. Robert had a few jobs throughout their marriage, including working for Honeywell. He served as a public relations director for a nonprofit organization and was even a part-time DJ at a radio station. He was also an actor in theater arts. Now, back to the dead people. The three bodies were taken to the Arapahoe County Coroner's Office for autopsy. Nancy's family was suspicious from the beginning. The Stallman family was adamant that Nancy would never hurt her own kids, as they were her entire life. All of her friends and family knew of the issues that Robert and Nancy were having in their marriage and knew that Robert had even moved out of the house for some time. But they all said the day before the murders, Nancy was happy and hopeful about them getting back together and working on their marriage, even though she knew about the affair. Then shortly after the murder, Robert's story changed. Dun, dun, dun. Robert originally said he came home from work and found the police at his house. Later, he says, well, actually, I forgot. I came home and I actually found the bodies. But then I went to the movies. <laughs> Sick. He Me said too. he meant to call the police and was going to. When he came back from the movies, you know, after he had time to process what he had seen. He had plans. But by the time he got home, the police had already been there because Tim had called them. Wow. Uh, oh, that's wild. Because that is what rational people do when they find their entire family dead. Let's go to the movies. I do. What are you talking about? <laughs> We're going to go to the fucking movies. I'm going to go see a double feature. Now, remember when they tested Robert for GSR? Yes. He tested positive. Guess who tested negative? I don't know his name. Her name, Nancy. Yeah. Tell me how someone who supposedly shot and killed her two kids and then herself had no traces of gunshot residue on her hands. The typewriter had no fingerprints on it, but had wipe marks on it, indicative of that someone wiped it clean after the suicide note was typed out. The coroner determined that the handgun was fired from an intermediate range which means two to eight inches away from Nancy's head. Now, self-inflicted gunshot wounds, mostly, not all, but most, are contact wounds, with the muzzle of the gun being pressed against the skin. Also, women hardly ever shoot themselves, especially in the face. Put the lotion on the skin. <laughs> That's what that just reminded me of. Put the lotion on the skin. Um, and they rarely shoot themselves in the face. Nancy's gunshot wound was literally in the middle of her forehead. Nancy had a neurological disorder that resulted in weakness and unsteadiness in her hands. Yet she could hold a gun steady long enough to kill two teenagers and then herself. Remember I said that David struggled with whoever killed him? Nancy weighed 100 pounds, but yet she somehow overpowered a strong 17-year-old boy and was able to shoot him. Then there's the location of the gun. The gun was found five and a half feet away from Nancy's body. She was sitting in a chair. It would have just fallen to the ground. It may have bounced and maybe like bounced like um, six inches away, 
not five feet. Robert took two polygraph tests and ended up hyperventilating during them um, because he said he was nervous, which made both tests useless. Everyone is suspicious, including the police, but they don't have anything concrete to get a conviction. So they are waiting for the coroner's report and still interviewing people. Kylie, with everything I just said, what do you think the coroner's report said? Did Nancy kill herself or was this a homicide? Homicide. The coroner listed this as a murder-suicide. They believe Nancy killed these two teenagers and then killed herself. Are you fucking kidding me? everything I just said. Robert immediately had the three bodies cremated and they were buried in their hometown of Iowa. But he was lonely. So seven months after his family is killed and gone, he married Sharon Cooper, the woman he was having an affair with, and moved her into the house where him and his wife and kids died. Sharon was an avid hiker, and her passion was the Grand Canyon. She had a bubbly personality, but was also a manic, depressive person. She had several medications that she took to keep her level. The neighbors were disgusted that he moved on so quickly. But Robert said he did not want to live in the past. His new life was with Sharon, hiking the Grand Canyon, and her three dogs that were better than children. They didn't talk back. They didn't smoke dope. They respected him and behaved as they should. Well, okay. In 1986, two things happened. Sharon's first book was published called One Foot in the Grand Canyon. She had good reviews and earned her respect as a hiker and an author. Robert started falling on hard times financially. So he went to go visit dear old dad back in Iowa. Dad is 92 years old, but in good health. A few days after Robert shows up, dad has a nasty fall and is dead within two weeks. Wow. Robert inherited a good chunk of change and is able to retire. Gee. Crazy. Wonder how Daryl dad died. In December 1987, shit hit the fan again. Sharon's emotional and mental problems escalated and is causing issues in their marriage. One day, an incoherent call to the police came in from Sharon saying she's terrified of Robert. She ran from the house and ended up in the stock room of a supermarket. Same. When the police arrived, she struggled with them when they tried to remove her from the store. (laughs) Bad idea. You will lose 99.9% of the time. As they were removing her from the store, she kept yelling that Robert was out to get her. It is not clear what caused this to happen, but but divorce proceedings started right after this. The divorce was not an easy one. He had to pay Sharon alimony of $500 a month, which would be a little over $1,100 today. He would have to pay that until 1990 and then $400 a month until 1997. He also had to pay $150,000, which would be about $400,000 today in stocks and bonds. And they also had to uh, share a visitation with the three dogs. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay. Custody. There was one strange thing in the divorce decree, though. Robert would receive $20,000 from Sharon's estate if she were to die before he did. Ooh, isn't that (laughs) fucking weird? Isn't that a coincidence? Let me guess, she fucking dies. This was a very expensive divorce for Robert, which meant he had to go back to work. Oh, no. Poor Robert. He was also lonely. (laughs) And there was no way he could bear the thought of being alone. So, he started placing ads in the personals. (laughs) 
That's fucking weird. This was like plenty of fish or Tinder for back in the day. No, no, no. <laughs> it's worse, actually. It's worse. It's like worse. posting on Facebook. It kind of is, but it's not. Yeah, it is, but it's not. <laughs> so, he found Donna Sundling of Evergreen, Colorado, a divorced woman with five grown children and five grandchildren. They started dating and were married August 18th, 1990. So, he didn't wait long at all. Oh, my God. <laughs> Dude wants to stick it in. Robert talked her into selling her expensive house and moving to Durango, Colorado, for those who don't know. Robert got a job as the morning drive time personality on a country radio station. We're done. <laughs> We're done. Good night. See you later. That's that's my DJ voice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's not very good. No. Okay. All right. I will not. If I heard you on the radio, off. <laughs> Okay, I will not apply for that job. He became very popular, so apparently he didn't have my voice, bitch. (laughs) He was also a part-time referee for Durango Parks and Rec, where he would officiate youth and adult basketball and soccer. Example. (laughs) Where he would officiate youth and adult basketball and soccer games. He was still in love with hiking that he used to do with Sharon, especially the Grand Canyon. And their home in Durango was filled with photos of the Grand Canyon from his marriage to Sharon. I don't think I could have photos of my ex's life and our life. Yeah, they're like chilling out there. Like we have a new life now. Thanks. Now, Donna was an aerobics instructor, so she was fit. Oh, she was fit, fit. She's a fit, fit, fit bitch. But she did not like heights. <laughs> Me, yes, except the fit part. <laughs> Wow, that was fucking rude. No one in this family is fit, okay? I am fit. Fit these donuts in your mouth. That's fit. I don't see the problem. Actually, tomorrow's Friday, therefore we get donuts at work. So, there, for And fit. I'm going to get a picture tomorrow of her fitting donuts in her mouth. I'm going to be like, mm, fit. Fit. <laughs> Check this fit. <laughs> Our picture for this on Instagram is going to be a fucking donut. <laughs> so, y'all get confused. Watch the podcast. Yeah. Watch the podcast. Well, <laughs> I said it. I'm not taking it back. All right. Just checking. Anyway, she had vertigo too. So Ooh, hiking. That's yeah. Not good, that's good not good. Hiking was really not her thing, but she did it for her man. Good old manny man. And he was not a looker. So I don't know how he kept getting these women, but you know, whatever. Even though she had a rough time keeping up with him on the hikes, she did not like the hikes. She started going with him less and less, and he would find other people to go with them. So he's like, yeah, whatever. It was not long before their marriage started falling apart. She decided to go on one more hike in the Grand Canyon with Robert. April 11th, 1993, Easter Sunday. Here comes Peter Cottontail. Stop it. (laughs) Robert, who was very calm, walked into the backcountry ranger station to report that his wife had suffered a tragic fall. He reported that during their hike, they had stopped at Redwall at Horseshoe Mesa to take a photo. Robert was setting up his camera to take the photo, and when he turned around, she was gone. Mm, Ironic. Weird. That's so crazy that I did not see that coming. He never even heard anything. Odd. He looked down at the cliff and saw that his wife was 160 feet below. He climbed down to her and found that she was dead. He wiped her face down with his hanky. Sorry, sorry. He wiped his face down with his hanky, 
covered her with a tarp. I don't know where the fuck he got a tarp from. And then climbed back up to go for help. Now, the rangers were suspicious, as this was the only place in their entire hike that would have resulted in a fatal fall. And the fact that Robert didn't hear her cry out when she fell. She didn't scream, she didn't cry. Right. Who falls off a cliff or down a mountain and makes no noise? And that's why they call her cliffhanger. Okay. Only the broke people would know. But there was no real evidence of foul play. Robert had her cremated right away. Weird. At her service, Robert gave a eulogy where he spoke very highly of his late wife. Friends of Robert's said the service was tearless and weird. Okay. He then went and sprinkled wildflower seeds at the spot where she died, calling the area Donna's Point. No, don't do that. He even went on talk shows and news channels talking about the dangers of hiking. Afterwards, he confided in his boss that back in 1978, his son David had gone crazy and killed Robert's first wife and daughter and killed himself. That is not what you what happened. Mm-mm. I thought your wife killed everybody and then killed herself. This is not the first time he has changed the story of what happened to his family. Usually, he would tell people they all died in a car accident where he was the driver and the only survivor. He felt great. I'm itchy. And bitchy. Now, with Donna dead, Robert was lonely. So he called Sharon, his second wife. At this time, her life was in shambles and thought Robert was a good way to fix her life. So she came up to Durango for a visit and stayed in the guest room, but did not end up leaving after that was supposed to be a short visit. And then her dog died. Meanwhile, Robert is the happiest his boss has ever seen him. He's a local celebrity for his radio show. He is enjoying his little gig as a referee and enjoys hiking still. No one even knew Robert had a wife between Nancy and Donna, let alone that she was living with him. October 2nd, 1994, just five months after moving back in with Robert, Sharon's grief over her dog dying became too much for her to handle, and she took an overdose of pills. There was a note left on her bedroom door that said, I've done it this time. What actually happened is unclear, because Robert's story has changed a few times. In one story, he said he came home, found the note, found Sharon unresponsive, carried her to the car like the hero he is, and took her to the emergency room. The next version... Next version. (laughs) The next version was that he came home and saw the note, but ignored it until later. When he went into her room, he found her groggy, helped her to the car, and then took her to the emergency room. Here's where it gets weird. A few hours after she gets to the hospital, she is dead. This is after doctors who treated her said she would be fine. She's then left alone with Robert in her room shortly before she died. It's crazy. Weird. Nobody's going to look into how many people have died from this man? <laughs> there, was, there was no investigation into her death. Oh my God! <laughs> Robert no longer had to pay alimony, and since she died before he did, he was able to collect the $20,000 from her estate. Oh my God. He had her cremated right away. I'm sure he did. Yep. His coworkers never knew she existed. Never knew she lived with him after Donna's death. Never knew he took her to the hospital. Never knew she died. He never told anyone shit. But some people were starting to pay attention. Including law enforcement. So, Robert quit his job. Sold his house. And moved to Pennsylvania to pursue a woman he met on the internet. (laughs) Somebody fucking killed this man. Thankfully, that one didn't work out. But he was still looking. I'm surprised he didn't kill her. He was desperate to be married again. 
His favorite date, his favorite date was to take women hiking to the Grand Canyon. But he was being watched by law enforcement because they didn't want another so-called accident to happen. He moved back to Grand Junction to date a woman who was actually getting bored with him. By now, he's working as vice president of Applecrest Irrigation Company and also doing some community theater. That's my theater voice. He then met Judy Hilty at a breakfast for singles and forgot all about the other woman and every other woman. He lived that once. <laughs> he found his soulmate. This is about the time Robert started to notice some changes in his eyesight. He was having issues with remembering his lines for his plays as well as some concentration issues. He went to the doctor where he was told he had inoperable lung cancer and it had spread to his brain. He was 67 years old. So he and Judy quickly married. Well, that made the authorities very nervous. Yeah. And this pushed their hand. So the first time they had spoken to Robert was after Sharon's overdose because three dead wives is too many. So at that point, Arapahoe County reopened their case with his first wife and his children. The FBI started investigating Donna's death since it happened on federal land. Robert was not surprised to see the police and invited them in. He continued to change the details of his stories. And when asked about the inconsistencies, he would say, I compartmentalize everything. And I do not live in the past. Okay. Investigators left Robert. And Robert had no idea that he was fucking screwed. So while Robert. Silly Robert. While Robert was moving to Pennsylvania and back to Grand Junction, investigators were speaking to people who knew Robert in Littleton, Durango, and anywhere else he lived. They had a state murder case for Nancy and the kids a federal murder case for Donna, and two suspicious deaths for his father and Sharon. Crazy. Weird. I'm, I'm like, kind of shocked that it took him to move to fucking Pennsylvania. <laughs> well, I'm shocked it took him three fucking wives. I'm just saying. So we have several agencies involved here, and it was going to take some time to get all the pieces together. But once they found out about the cancer diagnosis and that he married again, they knew they had to, like, move, like, now. And the best way to get someone like Robert is to stroke his massive ego. They knocked on his door and asked him to come down to the police department for questioning. And he's like, all right, bet. He didn't say that because he was like 100. <laughs> but they had an elaborate stage already set up for him. When he arrived, he had to walk by several boxes marked Spangler Task Force, which was obviously bullshit, but made Robert feel really good about himself. The cops sat him down and were like, oh, my God, we have never investigated a killer quite like you before. And his response was, it requires a singular focus in committing the actual crime quite cold-bloodedly. Okay. Get the fuck out of my face. <laughs> Dude, you didn't do anything, like, special. With the cancer diagnosis, he wanted to unburden himself and quickly confess to the murder of Nancy and the kids, but wanted to confess to a profiler who would answer some questions about himself since he was adopted and wants to know why he is what he is and why he did what he did. So here's where they were smart. Investigators were like, okay, cool, but profilers only speak to killers who have killed more than three people and you only kill like three. So Robert thought about it for a minute and he's like, can I talk to my wife? And they're like, yeah, sure. And gave him some time alone. When he returned, he said, <clears throat> okay, You've got your cereal. 
Okay, buddy. Simmer the fuck down. So, for Nancy and the kids, here's how it actually went down. And beware, this is fucked up. Robert hated his life. He was bored. His teenagers were out of control. Now, these are his words, not mine. His wife had a life of her own, and he was just, like, there as, like, a, a meal ticket. He was just paying the bills. Then he met Sharon Cooper and became obsessed with her. He moved out of the house for the nine months, and when he was gone, he barely even saw the kids. He was just busy living his new life with this new woman. But divorce is expensive. Child support is expensive. So there had to be an option B. And Robert came up with it. He moved back into the house with the ruse that he wanted to reconcile the marriage. Um, the kids had absolutely no respect for him anymore because of what he had did. And that kind of just added fuel to the fire. So let's, uh, let's set up a stage for the murder. He typed out a suicide note and told Nancy it was a Christmas letter and set it in front of her. She didn't read it. She just initialed it where he told her to. See, I can't do that. If you put something in front of me, I'm going to read it or at least skim it, whatever you're going to put in front of me. I'm not going to just initial or sign anything without reading it. Then the night of December 29th, he staged a big fight with her and made sure there were witnesses to this. December 30th, he put the footstool in front of the closet where the gun was kept to make it look like Nancy had used it to get the gun down from the top shelf. He called Nancy to the basement and sat her in front of the typewriter. He told her he had a surprise for her, told her to close her eyes. She was so excited, so she closed her eyes and was surprised by a gunshot to the forehead. Like, what a fucking piece of shit. He went upstairs and shot Susan once in the back. David was a little harder to kill. Robert shot David in the chest, but the shot did not kill him. David fought with Robert. He could not shoot him again, knowing that Nancy couldn't have shot him again. So he had to smother David with a pillow. Robert left the house, drove around for a bit, and then went to an animated movie. We're going to go watch a cartoon after murdering our entire family. Then there was Donna. After they were married, he realized they didn't really have anything in common, which is, you know, you learn about that while you're dating. That's why you date. Crazy. There's such thing as fucking divorce. Right. Wild. But since the divorce from his second wife was so expensive, he knew he did not want to do that again. Oh, my God. (laughs) So he talked her into going hiking at the Grand Canyon one more time. Took her to the one spot that he knew would be a fatal fall. Even Sharon, the avid hiker that goes to the Grand Canyon and even wrote a book about it, is afraid of that area. She was looking right at him when he shoved her off the cliff. He went down. That is sad. That's fucked. He went down to ensure she was dead. He said the marriage to her was a mistake. That is so fucking sad. Yeah. Especially if she's afraid of heights and she didn't want to go. Yeah. Didn't want to go. And then she's looking right at you as you shove her off a cliff. He said he had no responsibility in the overdose of Sharon. I call bullshit. This got to me. He said with the exception of those two bad days, he has been a model citizen. Are you fucking kidding me? I just had two bad days. He was obviously arrested. And then on November 5th of 2000, he pled not guilty. Yep. He said his brain cancer made him make false confessions. Shut the fuck up. I'm like, yes. The Arapahoe County DA spoke to Nancy's family. It was agreed to be a waste of money to extradite him back for a trial when he supposedly has like a month to live. 
and he would die before the trial could be even completed. Robert did finally agree to a plea deal in Donna's murder, where he would serve life in federal prison without parole. Okay, that one last long. I know. His new wife stood by her man. Of course she did. Until his death. She said he knew his previous marriages ended tragically, but did not know that he was involved. He always seemed so gentle. Okay, honey, you've known him for five minutes. <laughs> I'm just saying. And you would have had a tragic fall down the stairs had he not gone to fucking jail. Robert died in the Federal Correctional Facility August 5th of 2001, 10 months after being taken into custody. 23 years after killing Nancy and his children. His request to have his ashes scattered over the Grand Canyon was denied. Rightfully fucking so. Absolutely. Nancy, David, and Susan were all cremated and buried at Ames Municipal Cemetery in Ames, Iowa. Donna Sundling Spangler was cremated. The, actual, uh, the location of her ashes is unknown. Sharon Cooper Spangler was cremated. Her ashes are buried at United Hebrew Cemetery in St. Louis, Missouri. And I did look. This is a Jewish cemetery. I would have fucking assumed so. No, this is fucked. The reason I looked, which means Robert is even a bigger piece of shit. According to the article in Rocky Mountain News, he had Sharon cremated. If she was Jewish, which I'm guessing she was being buried in a Jewish cemetery, he went against her faith by having her cremated. The Jewish faith believe in burial as it's the Jewish faith believe in burial as it respects the body that carried the soul and cremation is a severe Jewish transgression. I learned that from working with the Jewish family when I was at the coroner's office. He's a bigger piece of shit than I even thought. Like motherfucker. But yeah, she is interred at a Hebrew cemetery, so I'm guessing she was Jewish. Robert was cremated, and the location of his ashes are unknown. I hope they're under a pile of shit somewhere. His parents are buried at the same cemetery that Nancy and the kids are buried. So, fuck this guy. And I hate him. Um, I cannot find anywhere if uh, his last wife is still alive. I would venture to say no, but stranger things have happened. Kylie, what do you have for us? So, I um, am a shit and didn't get you guys a stupid criminal in time. We're not shocked. But, okay. Me neither. Anyways, <laughs> but I decided to do something new. The 10 weirdest laws in Colorado. Some hope, of them are pretty fucking weird. I hope you had the elephant one. I haven't looked that far okay. into it. Uh, so, fortunately for drivers and animals, it is illegal to ride an animal on a highway while intoxicated. Absolutely. I don't know why we have to have the intoxicated part. How about we just not ride them on the highway? You shouldn't drink in horse. <laughs> you shouldn't drink in horse. Ugh. Uh, it is perfectly legal to sell tires and a motor vehicle accessories on Sunday, but it is legal to sell an actual motor vehicle. It on is. Sunday. I would know that because I work at a dealership. But in case you didn't know, it is actually illegal. I did know that. In the city of App App App. Okay. <laughs> in the city of Aspen. That was such a hard word. It's five letters. <laughs> in the city of Aspen, it is illegal to throw snowballs in public. Oh. Weird, right? You'd think that'd be okay there. <laughs> right? In the city of Alamosa, it is illegal to project a missile at a vehicle. Okay. Why does that have to be a law? I feel like that's just... I well, mean, it's because the, what they consider a missile is any... project. Like, my phone, if I throw it at a vehicle, they would consider that a, a missile. Weird. Yeah. In the city of Pueblo, it is illegal to allow a dandelion to grow more than 10 inches. 
Okay. This one's funny. Okay. This one got me. <laughs> it is illegal to throw, roll, or otherwise move a boulder on any public property in Boulder. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Boulder. Only in Boulder. You can't move a boulder. Wow. I, I read that. I was like, am I reading that right? Okay. And so when I worked in Boulder, we, I'd never got called in regards to that. But, uh, okay. It is perfectly legal though not recommended, to insult, taunt, or challenge a police officer in Boulder, but only until they ask you to stop. Correct. Wild. Yes. In the most Colorado of Colorado laws, it is illegal to ski while intoxicated in Vail. <laughs> oh, only in Vail. Only in Vail. Got it. So in Breckenridge, it's totally fine. Yeah. It is actually legal to modify the weather in Colorado so long as you have a permit. Where does one get a permit and where does one learn how to modify the fucking weather? Because it's supposed to be negative 20 degrees coming up this weekend. For years, Colorado ski resorts have paid private companies to burn silver iodide on the slopes to stimulate precipitation. Okay. Weird, right? Weird. You may want to dye your hair to express your individuality, but keep the dye away from your dog. In Sterling, it is illegal to dye a pet. In many cities, it is. Unless you use a pet-safe dye. Oh, yeah. But, uh, this is a bonus law. Though Coloradans not may think it's a weird law, it's certainly notable that Colorado was the first state to legalize recreational marijuana. Yes, we were, and that fucking sucked. Yay! I remember, because I was 13 at the time, and all of my classmates were so excited. I'm like, whoa! <laughs> Not for us! You had to be 21. <laughs> and everyone went out and smoked all the ganja on the fucking Capitol. Oh, it was, it was bad. Here is another fun law for you. It is illegal to ride an elephant down Colfax. Where do I get a sad elephant? <laughs> right, and why just Colfax? Yeah. Can I do it on my street? Wadsworth is fine. Stay off Colfax. Stay off Colfax, though. <laughs> so, well, that was interesting. Yes. I'm going to go get a permit to modify the weather because it's going to be butt-ass cold this weekend. Yeah, it's going to be nine. A high I of nine. I took nine. I took nine. <laughs> Single digits. And then in the negatives for overnight. We can't wait. Well, we have no heater in this room um, because my granddaughter stole it. Um, yeah. So, we're going to go ahead and sign off. Thank you for listening. This is your KRQL signing off. I don't know. That's my DJ voice. Okay. Goodbye. <laughs>